This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. This week, in episode 13, we travel back once again to the Men's Adventure Magazine offices on Madison Avenue, where men were men and women were secretaries. Much like the Mad Men TV series, except with cigar-smoked cubicles and bunkers, where men in suits and ties took off their jackets and rolled up their sleeves as typewriters banged and whizzed in the newsroom. Artists designed covers of war battles and pinup girls on easels, dripping with paint. Magazine management was the name of one publishing company that produced upward of 100 magazines a month. It was founded in the 1930s by a newsstand warrior named Martin Goodman. There was Bessie Little, who ran the Ladies' Confession magazine division. The formula for each story was sin, confess, repent. A wife cheats on her husband, confesses to the crime, then repents. Rona Barrett ran a movie gossip magazine division. There were sports mags, true crime, science fiction pulps, and a one-man operation called Marvel Comics. The staples of the company then were a dozen men's adventure magazines, known in newsstand vernacular as the armpit slicks or men's sweat mags. My father, novelist Bruce J. Friedman, edited four titles a month, the flagship being Mail Magazine that sold one million copies a month. He never brought the magazines home, but I'll never forget what I saw when I visited his office as a little boy. The hard-typing men with cigars, the painters at easels, news clippings dripping from corkboards, the smell of glue and printer's ink as they pasted together pages. The art director, Mel Blum, was a bodybuilder, as were many of the illustrators. The magazines were sold in barber shops, train and bus stations, at the bottom of the newsstands, and catered to a blue-collar World War II readership. Hundreds of writers, editors, and artists learned their craft at these pulp magazines. This was their day job. My father did his real work at night, and on the Long Island Railroad train to and from the job. His novels Stern, A Mother's Kisses, and Stories for Playboy and Esquire that were collected in Far From the City of Class were all written while he was still at magazine management in the 1950s and early 60s. And Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather while he was still there. You can hear Mario in episode 10 of this series, Tales of My Dead Heroes. Editor Mel Shestak became an internal legend at the office, a fabulous trickster beloved by all the people he conned. Shestak was also a cartoonist. The following conversation was recorded in 1984 when I wrote a piece commemorating the 30th anniversary of one of these magazines. Mel was then at his desk at some other magazine of the moment. I don't remember which. What year did you first go there? I got there about, oh God, six, it was 62. 62. Yeah, when they just moved, I got there the, about the week after they moved to 625, or whatever it was called, Madison Avenue. They had been in a... 655. Yeah, and then they moved to 625. Mm -hmm. of course. And I, I got there just as they moved. I had left my wife, my advertising, a whole world behind me. And I was living with a girl I met on the street. And I had she had a book called Far From the City of Class. I was sitting reading Far From the City of Class when I got a call from B.J. Friedman I made no connection. I had submitted a story, slush pile story, to Mail Magazine. Do you remember what it was called? 
It was about a Mexican prostitute, something like that. It didn't go to the secretary and the slush pile person for some reason. It went to a new man named Mario Puzo, who took it in to Bruce Friedman and said, there's something wacky about this story. I can't quite understand. It's not really our kind of story. There's something wacky about it. I want you to read it. For some reason, Bruce read it and called me and said he interested in the job. And it's absolute truth. That's exactly how it happened. Huh. I didn't apply for a job. I never even heard of the place. I saw a mail magazine in the barber shop. I had a beard. I'd just grown the beard. How old are you? 32. I had had a whole career in advertising for bars and everything. And I was broke. I had sold some stories to Dude and Jen and went to McCall's all because I didn't know what else to do. I figured that was a way to do it. I never thought about being a writer per se and that kind of thing. Went in, I met Bruce. I had that time I was going to write a book on Jewish cowboys, which has never been written. I was told me that. And I was really hot on doing that. I had a contract with Stein and Day, and it was the money I was living on, but for some reason I couldn't quite put it together. What was the name of the book? Jews in the Wild West. Mel never finished his book on Jewish cowboys, and I figured that was because there weren't any. But once I moved to Texas, I learned there were many. Were there actually Jews in the Wild they West? Sure were. Oh, God, that's what I mean. God, I could go in for hours and hours. From, you and mean hours. like German Jews who came over the 1840s? They were mostly German Jews, and they were a guy like. Uh, and they became gunslingers? Not exactly gunslingers. I call them gunslingers, but there was a guy who was the official Moyle, the guy who was circumcised, Rabbi Jacob Alston, who was the circuit riding rabbi, and he circumcised all the Jewish kids in Colorado. Well, there were a lot, because Colorado had had a lot of German. There were German Jews who came over in the 1850s and 60s. They worked on the railroad. They were cattle buyers. A guy named Jacob Bondi, who was with, who was with uh, John Brown, and he became a colonel in the Civil War. There were no Wild West famous gunslingers oh, yeah. who were fighting Jacob Studenmeyer. Jacob Studenmeyer was a two-gun marshal of El Paso. He killed 31 people in gunfights, and God help anybody who committed a crime on Saturday. He also had the streets paved of El Paso because he hated horses, rode a bicycle. Mel Shestak's soft cons never amounted to his own profit, and those who fell for them felt chosen. He once had Mario Puzo waiting out on a dock at 3 a.m. for a black market shipment of shirts for 50 cents apiece. The boat never arrived. I had an uncle in the shirt business. And a lot of times, my thing is constantly, why people get in difficulty with me is most about 80% of the time I come through. And therefore, you know, because it started out real, like all of them, they started out real. And then something happens in the middle that I didn't work. My father wrote about this in his article about those days, Even the Rhinos Were Nymphos. But Mel convinced my father that J.D. Salinger was coming out of his legendary seclusion, and his first stop was to visit magazine management because he loved Mail Magazine. Mel said he received this information from the man who pruned Salinger's trees and hedges. My dad stayed late at the office one night awaiting Salinger's arrival, but he never showed. So my father and Mario together discovered you in that publication. That's right, and I was hired. I mean, I was... I didn't know what I had to do. He said, you ever been an editor? I said, no. He said, that's good. He said, you have to have a certain kind of imagination and one foot in the asylum. Mel Shestak did, perhaps, have 
one foot in the asylum. But he was a decent individual. I fit. I couldn't fit better. And I immediately, I, I, I mean, within one day, it was if, as if I had come home. I have never in all the 463 years and 895 jobs that I have had and uh, my own kind of notoriety but I'm accused like Jesse James, not a Jewish cowboy. I have been accused of every crime in Missouri. You know, but I, but I, so everything is always thrown on me. But the fact remains that magazine management was terrific. It was exciting. It was what Bruce J. Friedman allowed you to do was to think for yourself and do it. You just did it your way, his way. I mean, he had certain rules, but you can, you, within those rules, like writing a sonnet, I mean, it's total creativity within the form, and you can do anything you want. What was the form? The form was that it was all imagination. I mean, it was the idea. It was it was so imaginative that it was real. Even when we made up these World War II stories, they were more real. A guy who had been at Anzio could not create a story about Anzio as well as the people who wrote for magazine management. His specialty was stories on adventure jobs, and plenty of them. What was your specialty there? Mine? Writing specialty. My writing was the adventure jobs. I made them all up. That was a real problem because people used to call and say, where do I get a job? Milking snakes. <laughs> they don't call them. <laughs> it's big money. You get $50 every snake you milk to get the venom. <laughs> Milking the venom. Yeah, I mean, like in Ocala, Florida. And the people would go to Ocala or... or uh, Ocala, Florida? Ocala, Florida. Or there was a job, I had a great job that I came up with, was keeping whores in good shape in Las Vegas by being them as masseuse, <laughs> keeping them all the time. <laughs> and they... <laughs> the best one of all is when we had a job, was a job that you can make $50,000 marrying hookers to save them. And there was a foundation, and I made up the name of the foundation and said it was somewhere out west, you had to find it. Now we never... What happened once was this guy, all of a sudden, Mr. Goodman said, Mel, you better go out there, you better take care of this. He didn't know that these were made up places, Martin Goodman. I never told you him. didn't even know. Do you assume that he did not know that these were I assume he did not know. He believed I think he, he read every page. He read every page. He must have been, but I always did. I never said this was at Box 346. I just said, out in, out in Florida, or there's a place in... And there's, you know, you didn't specifically I, uh, no, I, I figured that our readership couldn't write. And uh, did you get any? Despite that, did you get letters or? Oh, this is the same. So one day he called people. me. There was a man, a nine feet tall, all neck, with hands as big as you know, as tennis rackets, and he said, "I want to marry one of them hoolers." He was a state trooper from uh, California. He read about. It. He had to clip. He said, you G.G. Burke. G.G. Burke was one of my, we all had pseudonyms. And I was G.G. Burke. And I had these, these quote, adventure jobs, a way to make it in a good man's way. He said, I'm ready. He said, I don't even care about the $5,000. Fella up and so-and-so married a whore, and he's a great wife. And I looked at him, and I knew I said, like, God, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men, you're late. When did you read the issue? I said, our office is going to be seized. I don't have any time. I'm here on weekends, finding them up. But what happened is we've run out of horrors. 
elaborate on the leadership of, of male men, True Action, and well, I was the I became the editor of True Action. And At what uh, point? About the second year. I was the one person your father gave a magazine of his own to. I had True Action, and it, it, it was a magazine of phenomenal unimportance. <laughs> That's what I liked about it. Unimportant. Nobody would ever check. I could just. You know, I, I literally wrote the whole thing. It's 1964, and I have three more Nazis to kill. You know, and that kind of stuff. It gave me a chance. I learned whatever writing I learned. And I'm not the world's greatest writer, but I've written and sold maybe three or four hundred things under different names. But I learned to do it. I mean, Bruce would edit. Bruce is the world's was the world's greatest editor. I also learned. I had to take the magazine. I wrote it. I pasted it up. I. I I spec type, you work with the art directors. I, I know how to do, nobody today learns how to put a magazine together the way you learn at magazine management. In 1965, when Marvel Comics was only known to adolescent boys, the great Italian director, Federico Fellini, made a pilgrimage to the office with his producer and legendary publisher, Angelo Rizzoli. Fellini himself had begun as a cartoonist. Stanley recalled that the receptionist announced, There's a Fred Felony here to see you. But it was Shestak who ushered Fellini in when they wouldn't let him through. Fellini, one day Fellini came into the office with Mr. Rizzoli, I believe, and there was someone who worked for Stanley named Fabulous Flo Steinberg is what they called her in the comic books. She was the secretary of the comic thing. She had a little voice. And one day she said, Stan, there's a Mr. Fellini on the phone. You want to talk to him? And Stan said, who's he with? <laughs> and he said, <laughs> Can he come up? He's a comic book fan. But anyway, Mr. Rizzoli, Alain Clooney, who was the star of La Dolce Vita and of Satyricon, and Fellini, Fellini in white socks. He looked, he reminded me of Mario when you first meet Mario, and you don't know who he is. But it was open, and, was, and they didn't want to let whoever was at the desk in front wouldn't let him in. I, I brought him, as I remember, I came out, don't you know who this is? And blah, blah, blah. He said, I'm just a guy who likes comic books. But he met privately with Stan Lee? For a few minutes. But he looked like your, mother, he your mother was there that day. So he spent some time with us. We were more, <laughs> we were more interesting. I mean, we were living comic books where those were just things on paper. As the legend goes, Fellini made a fuss over Stan Lee's comics that day. Then Mr. Rizzoli discussed some kind of distribution deal with Martin Goodman. But that was according to Mel, who also says Fellini made a bigger fuss over the men's adventure mags when he saw them being laid out. Martin Goodman, the founder of Magazine Management, is remembered today as the man who began Marvel Comics around 1939. He hired his wife's nephew, Stan Lee, who took a little corner office at magazine management in 1961 and created the Marvel Age of Comics with new titles like Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and The Hulk. Nobody in their wildest dreams imagined it would skyrocket into a multi-billion dollar industry. Mr. Goodman always wore a hat often, often wore a fedora in the office. Not always, but he wore a fedora in the office. And he's the one man in the world, I'm really not afraid of, except for my ex-wife, I've never been afraid of anybody. But Goodman always instilled a sort of respect and fear 
uh, don't even say, hey, Mr. Goodman. That's right. They would say, Excuse me, sir. sir. And I also do cartoons in my magazine. That's what I start out as a cartoonist. I still draw cartoons yeah. and I sell cartoons to magazines. I drew a cartoon of Mr. Goodman of a kindergarten, and in it was Mr. Goodman as a student, as a little kid in short pants. He's wearing his fedora, and the teacher is saying, Johnny, you play the sticks, and yeah, Billy, you do this, and Mr. Mr. Goodman, you do that. He saw it, he looked at it, and he said, you think you're very funny. Someday you'll find out how funny you are. Writer Dorothy Gallagher reminisced about magazine management. She was quoted as saying, the magazines were produced the way Detroit produced cars. She said, I worked on the fan magazine line. On the other side of a five-foot partition was the romance magazine line. And across a corridor were the financial staples of the organization, the men's magazines. She described the decor as insurance company blah, grayish-white walls and foam-tile ceilings, overhead fluorescent fixtures, gray metal desks, except for the executive offices, which faced Madison Avenue and had carpets and windows. The space was divided into jerry-built bullpens with head-high partitions. Editors got a glassed-in area in each bullpen. Salaries were low, but you could make a hell of a lot of money. Uh, and I forgot. Freelancing. Yeah, freelancing um, to yourself. I mean, everything you wrote, you got paid for. That's great. That's yeah, I know. No, it doesn't happen anywhere. And that's why everybody was so happy there. Do you want to go on a trip? I remember once we wanted to go to Montreal for some reason for the weekend. I knew if I stayed up that night and wrote some kind of stupid story, whatever it was, I said, Bruce, I need a story, and he would look, he knew what I could do, whatever the one, he said, you do this one, in the morning I'd turn it in, he'd look at it, write $350, Friday I'd have $350, which was more than enough for them to take a plane to Montreal, we went to Montreal, had money left over, I mean, and you could, if you could plan your life, it was, magnificent. it was magnificent, but it was a constant stream of people coming in, cartoonists and writers, and schleps, and God knows who, and friends of all of ours, all of our friends came up. What was the glorious Steinem incident there? What was her interest in magazine? Oh, her fascination with magazine. I, brought, well, I had interviewed her for something else, and I brought her up there, and she met. She just thought it was quite wonderful. It was a pre-liberation days. She was around, you know, like people are around, like yeah. you're around, in a sense, on, on your way up, you know. She came up there, and uh, I think she wanted to write for it. I don't know what happened. I know that she was around a couple of times, and Jules was madly in love with her for a day. She's very attractive, but... They're all out of sight. A lot of writers who didn't even work at magazine management would just come to hang out for the camaraderie, like Richard Yates and Wallace Markfield. There was a guy named Wallace Markfield who was a well-known humor writer and novelist who came up to do a story about magazine management. It was some literary type magazine. And Bruce had written Stern, and there were, the, you know, the things were beginning to happen. Godfather hadn't been written yet, but that Markfield loved it so much, he was there the second week. And it was Good Friday, and he says, God, we'll be off. I remember him saying, we'll be off tomorrow. So he, he, he became part of the... There were hundreds of men's adventure magazines after World War II, and they were essentially comic books for grown men. It was a blue-collar market, and though they were fantasy magazines, they had to maintain some kind of credibility. I mean, I was into uh, making the impossible believable. I did a lot of 
of getting my friends into pictures of showing, you know, people robbing and pickpocketing and breaking into apartments and and being, you know, they were all posed by. In fact, once Arthur Kretschmer, now the editor of Playboy, once posed breaking into my Mercury, which I had then in a parking lot as a guy, beware the you know, beware the guys who break into cars type of story. They had not only the greatest people, the illustrations, these wonderful yeah. illustrations of of women in the illusions, and there'd be guys, Japs with twins, Japs in heavy furs with 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 icicles coming out of their nose. But she she'd be wearing a mini mini skirt with high high heels and carrying a submachine gun and her her park would be open. She'd have no brazier on and popping out, shooting and just and yet it seemed real. You believed that that would happen, that that happened, the illusions of this ragtag band of Those were com comic strips for growing up men. They were comic strips for growing up men, and they always dealt with the kind of man who was never an officer. It was always a sergeant who ran things. It was a blue-collar audience. So it was always some guy who had been a mechanic or an ex-army sergeant or a guy who was a truck driver who drywall finisher, something like that, would meet the boss's daughter who had come back from Vassar, and she'd be a real bitch. What he'd do was screw her in the back seat of a car, always in some kind of thing where the car would be in a garage and would be up on the top, you know, would move up. She'd get no pleasure out of it. Boom, boom, boom. And then, boy, her life changed. She found a real man. I haven't even touched upon the many great illustrators who worked at magazine management. But among the many writers who worked there were novelist Mickey Spillane, John Bowers, George Penty, who wrote the first book on the Kennedys, gossip columnist Rona Barrett, the experimental novelist David Markson, novelist Walter Wager, whose books were later made into Clint Eastwood films, Ernest Tidyman, who wrote The French Connection and Shaft, Martin Cruz Smith, who wrote Gorky Park, they even published news stories by classic writers like Erskine Caldwell and William Saroyan when they were in need of a quick paycheck. The Shestak's bunker was in between Mario Puzo and a writer named George Fox. When my father left the company in 1966, Shestak himself went over to the Saturday Evening Post. Fox had people, Nazis boiled in chocolate. And a boy shooting off that they fall in a big vat of boiling chocolate. They could not eating. <laughs> you know, Mario was Mario was the Cecil B. DeMille of the men's magazines. I mean, they were great armies, and oh, he could get lots of characters. Do you read through all of his stories, or, yeah, or a lot? Well, I had edited. I edited that stuff, and I read it all. I read it at the Saturday Evening Post. I edited, I went from that to editing. The very first day I was at the Post, I edited a piece by Hannah Arendt. I mean, so, and she's a young man, what are you doing? Oh, Jesus. And people like that, John O'Hara. <laughs> and I, I was I was saying, you're, you're okay, Aaron, but you're no Walter Kalin. You know, you're no Joe Millard. <laughs> <laughs> Melvin B. Shestak passed away in 2005 at the age of 75. He never finished the book on Jewish cowboys, but did publish several books, including The Country Music Encyclopedia in 1974, and a book on New York Mayor Ed Koch called How Am I Doing? Magazine management was renamed 
the Marvel Comics Group in 1973 and evolved into Marvel Entertainment in the 21st century. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for photos and illustrations. We'll see you next time.